Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Head Mirror's ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Michael Marino, a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, to discuss sinonasal imaging and navigation. Dr. Marino, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Drew. Dr. Marino, to begin, can you review some of the most basic general principles of sinonasal imaging? So from a basic principle standpoint, some of the things we think about uh, are at that at this point, uh, plane radiographs are mostly of historic value. Uh, while they, they may have been used in the past, uh, I think CT is, is probably the workhorse for sinonasal imaging and where MRI has contributions uh, for more advanced imaging, particularly when we're thinking about uh, soft tissue anatomy. For the most part, uh, we you know we try to assess opacification uh, by by CT, and we, we get really good bone imaging with CT. Uh, MRI imaging is a little bit more complex, where uh, different signal characteristics on T1 and T2 weighted uh, images may be helpful in in determining uh, pathology. Uh, in, in some of the things we think about from the sinusitis perspective is that allergic fungal sinusitis can have characteristic imaging on, on CT where the uh, fungal elements can appear high density uh, and then decrease the, or drop out signal on, on T2 weighted imaging. And that can be some uh, guidance on, on what kind of pathologies uh, we're, we're dealing with when looking at different types of sinonasal images. Yeah, I actually had a patient come into clinic today with a radiograph of their sinuses and it was not super helpful. So I know multiple CT options exist when ordering imaging for the the face and the nose. Uh, can you break down the choices and explain when you might order each? Right. So there there are different protocols available. Uh, and the first that we think about, uh, which is probably more, most exactly not, not sinonasal imaging, is CT of the head, which is better directed at imaging the brain. Actually, typically those images are, are not contrasted. And in many cases, they actually will not fully visualize the, the sinonasal cavities. Uh, they tend to use more widely spaced slices. Uh, and, and again, like I said, are, are best for imaging uh, brain and, and particularly for acute brain hemorrhages. So that's really the role of, of CT head specifically. Uh, there are also CT maxillofacial and CT sinus, which use the same uh, coding terminology, different institutions have uh, potentially different protocols uh, for the, for these two, and that can uh, lead to some confusion. But specifically, CT maxillofacial really is, is trying to assess for trauma and potentially uh, infectious conditions of the face. For trauma, I, I don't think contrasted images are, are necessary, but contrast may be a consideration when we're looking at infection. CT sinus, of course, is, is most directed at evaluating for chronic sinusitis in, in most uh, situations. When we think about um, whether or not we're going to add contrast, I would say for most of these images, we, we do not include uh, contrast, particularly when we're thinking about chronic uh, sinusitis. The situations where we, we sometimes do think about adding contrast is for inf infection, in particular complicated infection. So whether the orbit, uh, the facial soft tissues are involved, that may be a scenario where we would add contrast. Uh, contrast also may be a consideration if we're investigating for a sinonasal tumor as well. The last thing I wanted to address is that there are also navigation protocols, which uh, for coding purposes are, are actually the same as CT sinus and maxillofacial, uh, but, but typically use a, a fine cut uh, protocol uh, where less than one millimeter 
uh, slices are used and, and less than one millimeter between slices. So imaging protocols that use about one millimeter slice thickness uh, or less than that in, in many instances are potentially uh, able to be used for intraoperative navigation as well. That's great. And we're going to get into intraop navigation a little bit more later on in this episode. Let's talk about now when you would consider an MRI for sinonasal disease. So I think a lot of times we're, we think about MRI for sinonasal disease, generally speaking, when we want to get more soft tissue accuracy or better define the soft tissue anatomy. Uh, but thinking a little bit more specifically, I think one of the most specific indications for uh, considering MRI is when we have unilateral pathology. So if we see a unilateral lesion, whether that's on endoscopy or we've done a previous CT, uh, that, that's a good indication to proceed to an MRI because an MRI is going to give us better soft tissue um, evaluation. We may be able to uh, begin to delineate between uh, benign and malignant uh, tumors and, and how they how they affect the, the sinonasal spaces. Uh, we can even start to tell the differences between what is uh, tumor and, and what is uh, sinuses that may be obstructed and, and uh, have obstructed secretions in them, which will be a little bit less easy to tell apart on, on uh, CT. Uh, other scenarios where we, we use uh, MRI uh, is when uh, we're evaluating for CSF leaks, uh, uh, MRIs can be helpful. Uh, for identifying uh, the location of a leak or the presence of a leak. And there are, there are actually MRI sequences uh, that can and can specifically evaluate for, for CSF leaks. In the uh, presence of a known malignancy, MRIs can also be helpful in evaluating for whether or not uh, nerve structures have been invaded. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a good test for perineural invasion in those scenarios. Other scenarios, and, and sort of particularly timely at the, at the moment, uh, is when evaluating for anosmia. I think MRI probably gives us uh, the most information about uh, secondary causes uh, uh, for, for anosmia. So those, those are some of the scenarios in which we, we think about MRI. And, and, and uh, the last one I wanted to mention is I think MRI has a higher value when we're considering invasive fungal sinusitis and particularly Contrasted MRIs uh, can show us if there's there's viable sinonasal mucosa, or in in the situation of a, evaluating for invasive fungal sinusitis, whether there's non-viable uh, sinonasal mucosa. Uh, so that that is really kind of the the uh, most sensitive test for that scenario as well, and for which we uh, we typically think about MRIs. Thanks, that's great. I know we order CTs probably more often, but it, it sounds like there are quite a a long list of possibilities for MRI as well. Um, well. One of the most helpful aspects of reviewing any imaging for the fresh intern to even a seasoned attending is a systematic approach. In light of our sinonasal discussion, what is your systematic approach to reviewing a sinus or a maxillofacial CT? And what are some of the classic danger areas that should be reviewed pre-op on every CT scan? So my, my approach and uh, what we try to teach our residents uh, for approaching a sinus CT and to think about it in a systematic way, which, which covers the uh, danger areas, is to use uh, what has been called a close mnemonic, so C-L-O-S-E, uh, where this, the C stands for cribriform, so we're going to evaluate the cribriform plate, uh, use, uh, try and quantify what is known as the, the Kiros classification to see how uh, uh, deeply, the, the cribriform penetrates into the, the nasal cavity, whether or not it's symmetric on both sides. Uh, and that's, that's the, uh, the first thing that we evaluate. 
Next, we move on to the, the L, which refers to the lamina papricia. Uh, we try to find dehiscences in the lamina uh, because that may impact how we approach a surgery in particular. Uh, the, the O um, uh, can uh, refer to two things. One, one is anode cells, which are also known as phenoethmoid uh, cells. And these are uh, pneumatized ethmoid cells, which pneumatize laterally and superior to the, the sphenoid cells. These are important to identify uh, because they can lead to some confusion when operating uh, or trying to operate towards the sphenoid sinus. Also, uh, the uh, internal carotid artery and the optic nerve can surround an anode cell. The O can also uh, stand for uh, orbit, uh, which we, we partially evaluate when we think about the lamina uh, papricia, uh, but we want to see if there's any pathology affecting the orbit as well or, or protruding into the sinonasal cavities. The S uh, kind of broadly stands for sphenoid, and we think about uh, all the structures that surround the sphenoid, and that includes the internal carotid artery, uh, the optic nerve, uh, the cavernous sinus, uh, as well as the maxillary division of the uh, trigeminal nerve and the vidian nerve. Uh, these are all structures that kind of pass in and around the, the sphenoid sinus and can have variable uh, dehiscence uh, or relationships to the sinus, depending on how, how it's pneumatized. Uh, so we always like to look closely at that because these are all important structures uh, that can be affected by um, uh, surgery. And uh, typically the we, we think of the last letter, the E, is to look in the ethmoid cavity, and what we want to look at very closely uh, often is the anterior ethmoid artery, uh, which, which will cross uh, posterior to the frontal sinus outflow tract, uh, but along the root of the ethmoid cavity. And, in, and of most attention is uh, that the, the anterior ethmoid artery can be dehiscent. This is something we want to identify uh, before beginning a surgery because it can be injured and result in uh, orbital hematoma uh, or, or hemorrhage in the areas around the cribriform plate if it's inadvertently transected. So that, that's kind of our mnemonic approach, our standardized approach uh, to thinking about a CT sinus. I think it highlights on many of the, uh, the structures we, we want to identify before a surgery and, and potentially that can be uh, endangered during a procedure. Since you mentioned the Kiros classification system, can you go into more detail and explain that? Correct. So this is the uh, the depth of the curbiform uh, plate into the, the nasal cavity. And what we measure is the length of what's called the lateral uh, lamella. And uh, if the lateral lamella is uh, less than or yeah, less than or equal to about three millimeters, that, that's known as Kiros 1 uh, and sort of poses the least risk of injury. There's sort of an intermediate uh, Kuros 2 classification where that depth uh, or length is about four to seven centimeters. Uh, and then there's uh, patients who have a very deep uh, cribriform plate greater than seven uh, millimeters and kind of pose the, the highest risk for uh, danger to the cribriform plate uh, when, when performing sinus surgery. There's also a fourth classification, which just which tries to highlight uh, if there's asymmetries between the, the sides. Uh, which can be a, a challenging situation uh, for the for the surgeon uh, uh, when trying to extrapolate one side to the other. Now that we have a better understanding of how to review images, let's say we have a CRS patient ready for endoscopic sinus surgery. Why would we consider using a navigation system, and are there cases when using one would be unnecessary? So the, the, to start, the cases where we, we don't think about using navigation uh, are for uh, limited sinus surgery. So typically, if we're only going to do a maxillary entrostomy uh, 
and or an, an anterothmoidectomy. Uh, th those are ones we, we feel like we can safely approach uh, without navigation. When we're, typically, when we're thinking about sinus surgery that's more extensive than that, so either total ethmoidectomy, sphenoidotomy, or frontal sinusotomy, uh, then, we, then we do include navigation because the surrounding structures for a more extended sinus surgery become uh, potentially higher stakes, and we want to be able to navigate uh, around, around these, um, these structures. So those are the, that's the scenario in which we think about using navigation. Uh, other scenarios in which we think about uh, using navigation are is if we have uh, difficult revision surgery. Uh, that may be an indication uh, for intraoperative uh, navigation as well. And then how can we maximize the benefit of a navigation system while avoiding potential pitfalls during endoscopic sinus surgery? So I think to maximize the benefit of the navigation, we, we want to be familiar with the anatomy. I think the, the navigation system is a important adjunct to our understanding of endoscopic anatomy. It can help us confirm uh, what we're thinking about uh, when we're uh, visualizing the anatomy with the endoscope. I don't think one, one replaces the other, but they uh, can be used uh, synergistically. I think that the navigation system can also help us do more complete sinus surgery uh, in, in particular. Uh, so identify areas that we can uh, proceed with our dissection in where we may have been more hesitant to do that uh, within the absence of a navigation system. Finally, there, there is some question about whether or not navigation can uh, help avoid complications. Uh, there, have, there have been some studies to suggest that navigation can, in fact, help us uh, avoid some complications. Uh, one of the, the issues is that, fortunately, major complications at this point are, are very rare. Uh, for endoscopic sinus surgery, so it's it's a little challenging to show benefit just because of the the rarity of, of major complications. But I, I think uh, there probably is some benefit in avoiding uh, complications uh, over the long haul, and, and especially for learners who are, are starting to become familiar with endoscopic sinus surgery. Absolutely. You know, right now technology is advancing rapidly across all medical specialties, including rhinology. What near future developments do you anticipate for navigation systems? So I think there are uh, several avenues in which navigation systems will become more technologically advanced than they already are. I think there's a continual interest in getting the precision of the navigation as fine as we possibly can. I think currently we can sort of safely navigate uh, with, with an error of about two millimeters or less, uh, which is... Uh, really, really amazing. Uh, but I think uh, there's a lot of work going on to, to try and uh, make that error even less and have even more precise and consistent navigation. I think artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning uh, are also opening up avenues for the application of, of navigation. So uh, there's, there's a lot of work going on in segmenting images and, and having machine learning or artificial intelligence ag algorithms do that automatically. So uh, able to look at a complex image set and identify structures for us, including things like optic nerves, uh, internal carotid arteries, uh, and, and to do that without very much user uh, input. And the uh, navigation can then kind of alert us uh, to when we're nearing those uh, structures. And, and those are, I think, advances that may, may make their way into more common practice. And perhaps a final application of, of kind of some of the, those same machine learning techniques will be for augmented reality. And by augmented reality, we mean uh, kind of overlaying the 
navigation information with our uh, endoscopic view. So where we'll be able to get a uh, an artificial visualization of structures that may be beyond where we're operating and understand the relationship uh, with the with the endoscopic image. So I think uh, a lot of uh, potential exciting advancements uh, in uh, intraoperative navigation. Well, that's very interesting. Well, Dr. Marino, this has been a great discussion about sinonasal imaging and navigation. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic? I think just to uh, go over some of the things we, we talked about, and, and that's that uh, we want to have a systematic approach to evaluating sinonasal imaging and, and CT sinus in particular, uh, because it is really the, the workhorse of evaluating um, the, the sinuses. Uh, I think uh, knowing when we want to apply MRIs uh, are, are important. Uh, we, we clearly use them less frequently, but, but they have an important uh, and in many sense, uh, many ways, a, a specific uh, role uh, in the evaluation of, of sinonasal disease. And then uh, lastly, I think that there's really a lot of exciting development that may happen in the way of uh, intraoperative navigation uh, that will fuse advances in artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and even uh, applications such as augmented and virtual reality. Thank you so much, Dr. Marino. I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Many forms of sinonasal imaging are available. A maxillofacial CT is best for trauma or infection. CT sinus with fine cuts is used for endoscopic sinus surgery. An MRI is often best if concerned for tumor, invasive fungal sinusitis, or other complications. A systematic approach for reviewing sinonasal imaging with the close mnemonic for danger areas should be utilized prior to surgery. Navigation helps to delineate variable and challenging intraoperative anatomy, allows for more complete dissection, helps learners with mastering anatomy, and may help prevent some complications. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. How does allergic fungal rhinosinusitis appear on CT? It appears as a general opacification with expansion of the paranasal sinuses, which is filled with hyperdense material. What imaging modality would you be most likely to use if evaluating for anosmia? CT is usually ordered first to rule out obvious sinusitis and sinonasal mass, but an MRI scan is more definitive to evaluate for intracranial pathology or inflammatory changes along the olfactory bulb. When would you consider adding contrast to your CT? if concerned for tumor or infection. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.